So the World Surface Row Atlantic is a 3,000-mile unsupported row across the Atlantic Ocean, so from Lagomera in the Canary Islands to Antigua. It's technically a race. I'm a pretty competitive person. Nobody will be surprised if they, to hear that if they know me, but it's about 40-ish boats that all leave around the same time, aiming to get to Antigua in the fastest or safest way possible. We signed up, so it's myself and three other women, Liz Watson, Kit Windsor and Beth Motley. And we're in an eight metre by two metre boat for hopefully less than 40 days, rowing constantly, two people rowing at a time, two hours on, two hours off. It's quite a big challenge, probably the definitely the biggest thing I've done so far and probably the biggest thing I'll ever do. It's been amazing preparing for it and learning about all the different things that come with ocean rowing. In this series, as a special treat, we are featuring the music of one of our guests in the series, Julia Kwamea. You can find the link to Julia's Spotify album in the show notes. I'm Ethan Devitt, and welcome to the 50 Faces podcast, a podcast committed to revealing the richness and diversity of the world of investment by focusing on its people and their stories. I'm joined today by Laura Langton, who is an investment manager at JM Finn. She was previously involved in developing partnerships and revenue streams of financial services. She's currently preparing for the world's toughest row Atlantic challenge in 2023, something we're going to discuss in here. Welcome, Laura. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Let's start by talking about your background. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And when did sports start to play a role? So I grew up in the Cotswolds in a quite a small little village called Winchcombe with my mum and my brother. And I then went through sort of school and, and sixth form and then went to Lancaster University and studied history there. So sport sort of always played a part in my life. So my mum is a jockey or ex-jockey. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, not the same five foot frame that she is. So it was never going to be my sport. But I'm from a rowing background. My grandfather rode for Cambridge and then Leander. So it was something that I decided to pursue whilst at university. And I just think that it's probably something that I'm very passionate just about sport in general. I think that the team dynamic really changes your personality and helps you to build relationships in a very different way. And when I grew up, I had horses because of my my mum's background. And I think that trying to communicate with something that couldn't respond to you verbally also taught me a lot when I was younger. That is so interesting. Uh, first off, I'd love to ask about your mom. So having a jockey as a mother or parent, what was your childhood like? Were you going to these horse races? Was she still competing at that level when you were during your childhood? What was that like? So she was sort of of the generation where women weren't able to be professional jockeys. So she was an amateur. She was a point pointer and then she was a national hunt jockey as well, but never really sort of got through the the glass ceiling that was it was a very male-dominated sport. It was amazing. I think no two days were the same. I grew up sort of around horses and around a lot of Irish people that had interesting tales to tell. And then my mum basically continued the sort of horse part of her life until well, she, she still has horses. And I think that that led me to talk to lots of different people when I was younger and, and learn a lot about different backgrounds and cultures and I had an awesome childhood, to be honest with you. It was, it was a very exciting and also, you know, not the, not the standard. And when it came to rowing, were you getting lots of advice and tips from family members, given your, your grandfather's 
history there? So my grandfather sadly passed away before I was born, but yeah, I very much was involved with people who knew him and then people were pushing me down the rowing route. I think also it's a very different sport to all the other ones. So I think it's Hugh Laurie who famously, when he was asked about why he chose to row, he said, you know, it's a brutal sport. It's, you know, there's not really much that you enjoy about it, but it's the only sport that when you beat somebody, you're facing them. It's quite interesting, you know, going over the finish line, you watch the fact that you're in front of your opponent. So there's always a lot of support and there's always a lot of people who have geared me towards where I am now. Before we get to the world's toughest row, which is, of course, next on the horizon, just what it like to take a detour through your career path. So how did you end up then going from University of Lancaster into some financial partnership building and ultimately into financial advice? So when I was at university, I was adamant that I was going to be a lawyer. That was just, I was going to do a history degree, then a law conversion and tread that path. And then it was only sort of in my second year that I did a work experience at BlackRock and I was sort of thrown into quite an interesting world. And I thought, you know what, this is something that I'd never really thought about. But then I did a bit of research into it and I really, I thought it was encompassed sort of the research side that I built up through my history degree but also the forging of relationships and partnerships that I am definitely a people person. And, and I love the, the fact that in my current role, you're with somebody for a long time. You hopefully have a long, healthy relationship, helping people build a sort of financial stability. And that's not something you get in law, from my personal opinion. You, you deal with a case and then you move on to another one. So I like the fact that there were sort of long-term partnerships available. I graduated from Lancaster and then just thought I don't know where to start with the looking for a job in financial services and I tried a few different ins but I think for me in hindsight I think it was quite a difficult industry to get into unless you already knew somebody within the industry and I think that's something I'm passionate about hopefully changing or trying to at least give people more support when they're looking for the role so what I ended up doing was accepting a a grad job completely left field with DMG so the Daily Mail group and worked there as a business analyst and then moved into their commercial department building white label financial partnerships for the male brand. And then I just happened to meet the previous head of investment management at JM Finn, who took my CV and said, you know, she'll get in touch if there's a role. And then just so happens that her personal assistant went on maternity leave and the cover that they'd arranged just didn't turn up. I got a phone call to say, bit of a curveball, but how do you fancy coming to be my assistant for nine months? And, you know, it'll probably be a nine months long job interview. But if you enjoy it, there might be a role at the end. And if you don't, then you know it's nine months out of a very, hopefully long career doing something else. So I jumped to the challenge. And then, yes, six years later, I'm now a qualified investment manager. So I think lots of people thought I was a bit stupid to sort of throw away two years of a different industry and career building in that side. But actually, I learned a lot of the corporate side of things. And although, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of crossover in my job, it was how to write an email professionally, how to be organized, how to manage all the spinning plates that seem to be forever going. So yeah, no, it was a bit of a meander into the world of investment, but yeah, worked out in the end. And we'll come back to some of the, the skills you bring from sports into a role like providing financial advice. But let's talk now about your preparation for the world's toughest row, Atlantic Challenge, later this year. Can you tell us what that is and what is going into the preparation? So the world's toughest row, Atlantic, is a 3,000-mile unsupported row across the Atlantic Ocean, so from Lagomera in the Canary Islands to Antigua. It's 
technically a race. I'm a pretty competitive person. Nobody will be surprised if they <laughs> to hear that if they know me. But it's about 40-ish boats that all leave around the same time, aiming to get to Antigua in the fastest or safest way possible. We signed up, so it's myself and three other women, Liz Watson, Kit Windsor and Beth Motley. And we're in an eight metre by two metre boat for hopefully less than 40 days, rowing constantly, two people rowing at a time, two hours on, two hours off. It's quite a big challenge. Probably the definitely the biggest thing I've done so far and probably the biggest thing I'll ever do. It's been amazing preparing for it and learning about all the different things that come with ocean rowing. And tell us a little bit about your training regime, because just in the pre-chat, you talked about a 36-hour row that got waylaid by weather. So what kind of training are you doing and what kind of extended period are you rowing for without a break? What we're doing at the moment is for midweek, we're doing three land sessions. So they're strength strength sessions or sessions on the rowing machine. I'm very fortunate that my brother, Tom, is a PT, he's a personal trainer. So he's put together a very sound program for us all to follow and, and keep us all accountable. And then we all get down to Exmouth on a Friday afternoon or evening with the aim to get out and do minimum 12 hours, but hopefully as many hours as we can do until sort of Sunday lunchtime. And that's mostly tide and weather dependent. So in the past couple of weekends, we've had sort of 36 hours planned in, but then the wind starts gusting at 20 plus knots and sometimes up to 34 knots. And we get some really helpful people that say, oh, but you know, on the Atlantic, it's going to be difficult weather. And I have to remind them that when we're doing the actual row, we won't have to a, try and navigate back into a UK coastal village <laughs> and also won't have to go to work at seven o'clock on the Monday morning. So it's quite frustrating hoping that you're going to be able to go out for a long time and then having to make the decision, a difficult decision to come in. We don't want to be a RNLI statistic where we've had to, somebody had to come pick us up because we haven't made the right decision. And we're supported a lot by different people at Exmouth Marina and people that have got a hell of a lot more knowledge than we've got. And so when they tell us not to do something or to call it a day, we definitely listen to them. And then so our longest row so far has just been just over 24 hours. And there was only three of us on the boat because one of the girls was at a wedding. So we were doing four hours on, two hours off, which is something that I'm glad we're not going to be doing when we're actually doing the challenge because it was quite a brutal stint rowing for four hours. But what we try and do is emulate what we'll be doing across the Atlantic. So we do two hours on, two hours off for the whole of our training session, which is absolutely fine. And to honestly, once you once you get stuck into the cycle, it's perfectly doable. It's just then having to come back to a full working week, sort of getting into the office for 7 a.m. and being awake for until you go to bed at sort of 10 o'clock in the evening which is not something that I, I was doing on the weekend I was only sort of getting snippets of an hour and a half sleep every now and then <laughs> and so that's where the difficulty in the training really picks up. So within the boat there's the team and then is there a, a cox? No so no cox there's just the four of us on the boat there's two hatches either end so there'll be two people rowing and then one person in either hatch either sleeping eating cleaning doing boat admin and then you have sort of two hours off to achieve all of your all of your tasks before you're called on to shift and then you you take somebody else off so it's just just the four of us and it's an unsupported row so we have to take everything with us that we require whilst we're out there and I was actually having a funny conversation with somebody because mid-training session my hairband broke and that's just the thing where you go oh well, I've got another one but obviously, middle of the Atlantic, if you don't take it with you, you, you won't have one. So it's all these sort of silly little things that you have to remember that they're not just going to be 
there like they normally would be you've got to make sure that you're planning all the things that you're going to need for those 40 days or 40 ish days and very basic question toilet facilities on the boat (laughs) so it's a very delightful bucket situation although we were very kindly donated by i don't know if you watch dragon's den but there was a product on there called the kitty whiz which is a sort of portable toilet for children, but they've now bought out an adult one. And so we're raising money for three charities, Macmillan Cancer, the Outbound Trust and Prostate Cymru. And they were, this company, Kiddiewiz, were contacted by sufferers of prostate cancer because the need to go to the toilet just at a moment's notice is quite a normal thing for them. And actually she was really happy to support us and give us maybe a slightly more dignified toilet solution because of the charities that we were we were supporting, so that's a slightly less open way of using the bathroom. <laughs> Unglamorous question, but it had to be asked. So forty yeah. days and two hours at a go, and because I'm a runner, and that might be a normal kind of training run for me, two hours. I have my my podcast, my audiobooks, sometimes just my own thoughts. What's going through your mind for those two hours? It's quite an interesting one, actually, because so we are able to take speakers and and have podcasts and and music and everything playing. But also we're we're sat talking to each other and we're also just rowing in silence. And there's there's a huge variation in the time of day that it is, how much sleep you've had, if you've eaten. I was talking to one of the girls because we don't both change at the same time. So I'll row with somebody for an hour and then somebody will come and relieve them. So I'll row with two different people over my two-hour shift. And it's quite funny because... Kit, who won't mind me saying this, but she was sort of the replacement whilst I so she rode for the, my second hour. She was just chit chatting and just telling me all the things that was cropping up in her head. And I said, I'm really sorry, but I've been already been rowing for an hour and I just can't keep up this conversation. <laughs> it's just knowing each other. And, and actually, sometimes it's really nice just to sit and listen to what's going on around you because at, at night when it's pitch black, you can hear birds sort of diving into the water. You can hear the waves breaking a little bit. You can hear the noise from the town not that far away from you. It's quite nice to have a bit of variation. But we're also, as part of our fundraising, we're running a, a playlist for our journey. So it's we're trying to get to 3,000 songs. It's £3 a song. I can say we've had some very eclectic songs added to this list, but it's quite nice because people are able to put a message up and it will be, I know that, for example, somebody's put Nimrod on there by Algar. So there's some there's some classical music, but I just know that when that comes on, I know exactly who added it to the playlist. And it's a little bit of a, a boost. Not that it's necessarily the most motivating song, but there's quite a few of those that are quite nice. So there's a bit of a mix when we're, when we're actually rowing. It's like having your own cheer squad kind of accompany you along the way. <laughs> this is the first time you've done something like this, is it? Yeah, so I... It was never really on my radar, but I rode at university with Kit, who I'm doing the the row with. She has wanted to do it for a really long time. It's been on her bucket list. And the opportunity arose that she started putting together a crew with a couple of other people and there was a spare seat. And I saw the opportunity and I thought, I don't really want to do it. But at the same point, I don't want to not do it. I don't want her to come back and say, this was the most incredible thing I've ever done. And for me to realise that I could have done it, but I just wasn't brave enough to take the plunge. So... I spoke to my fiance, my family and my work and in a good way or bad way, they were all incredibly supportive. So so I had no excuse but to go for it. And actually, since we signed up in January 2021, it's been a bit of a whirlwind, but it's been incredible. We haven't even got to the start line yet, but it's been fantastic. 
Well, we'll put links to the charities you're raising money for, as well as to your own websites and, and the date of the, the row in the show notes. So everyone can look there. We're going to take a short break to hear from the sponsor of this series, With Intelligence. I sat down with Kip McDaniel, President Americas of With Intelligence. I asked Kip, what were the key topics in allocators' minds today? Allocators, managers are humans. They're not organizations. And so they care about the things that humans care about. And that stuff can be pretty quotidian. It's what am I going to pay my team in a world that has been drastically changed since pre-COVID? How do I go about functioning in a hybrid environment with young employees? The stuff that everyone worries about, allocators and managers worry about as well, because it very much impacts how they do business. And now back to the show. And just in terms of what you've learned so far, you mentioned working on a team and the need to, I suppose, to adjust oneself, but also to to learn how to to maximize that team dynamic. How would you say rowing as a sport and this race in particular has transferred over into your professional life and how you operate there? So I think having spoken to a few people, and to be honest, because in the financial world, there's quite a lot of past rowers, and they always say that they would hire a past rower because with rowing, if you don't show up, the boat can't go out. So if you've got if you've got four people in the boat and one person doesn't show up, you can't go out with three people. You just move it onto land training and you let everybody down. And that was something that everybody says at university, the rowers are the ones that sort of keep themselves to themselves or it's not really a hobby, it's more a lifestyle. But it's because you just never want to let anybody down. There were times when I'd know that somebody in our crew was going to be going out the night before we, before a training session. So I'd make sure that I said, right, I'm going to come knock on your door at half six to make sure that you are out of bed. And even if it's not your best training session ever, you're not going to let us down and make us have to do either erg stints or running up and down the bank whilst other people are rowing because we've all got up at six and you're just because you can't be bothered or because you're too tired, it doesn't really work that way. Definitely rowing as a sport makes you dependable and makes you also have high expectations of other people because if somebody didn't turn up to a football match, we just play one person down or, you know, try and sub somebody else on. But that's just not the option in, in this sport. This challenge specifically, it's basically a social experiment. There's people that have done it who are related. You know, there was two sets of twins that did it last year. There's people that have done it that don't know each other at all and they've just been put together by chance. And there's people like our crew where I've known Kit for 10-ish years since university, but the other two people on our crew, Liz and Beth, I met Liz because of the challenge and Beth goes to my brother's gym and joined the crew because she'd heard that it was something that I was doing. So Kit and I know each other really well. Liz and Beth, I'm getting to know more and more the, the more we do this. But it's definitely just the case of you've got to bend yourself but also stick to your principles as well. So, you know, you can't go into this challenge and say, this is what I want to do and this is how I want to do it. Because fundamentally, we're all doing it for different reasons. We've each got charities that we want to want to support. We've each got ways that we want to achieve this. I said I'm really competitive. The other girls will laugh and they'll agree, but they're equally as competitive, but maybe not as aggressively competitive as me. So it's, you know, if we're out there and we're having an amazing time and there's a huge load of dolphins near to us, are we going to stop and watch that, immerse ourselves in that experience, or are we going to keep rowing because we're trying to be competitive? We've had these conversations. We know that it will depend on where we are and how close we are to being where we are in terms of the placings and the weather that we've had and 
how far into our journey we are. But it's all these things that you've got to be able to change yourself and, and be flexible in your opinions, but also not give up your the aims and the objectives that you've got. Really interesting, and especially that part about showing up, because I do think that is a what ninety percent of life, or whatever they whatever that that, that <laughs> part is. Just going back to some personal reflections. So, in something that is as physically grueling and I suppose requires such stamina, I'm sure there have been setbacks or challenges, or even professionally in that career, have there been setbacks or challenges that you've learned lessons from? I think that it's quite interesting because there's there's stuff that crops up, and at the time it feels like it's the end of the world, and then. You work through it and you realize actually it's not really that bad. You, know, you go, right, I didn't quite perform as well as I thought I was going to. Am I ever going to be able to come out of this? And then in a year or two's time, you think that was nothing to really write home about. But at the time, it was an absolute nightmare. And I think there's quite an interesting book that I read recently, basically about reframing how you think about things. So I've had a knee operation, which was due to a netball injury when I was at university. And I thought, I thought it was quite good to get to sort of 21 years old and not have an operation but then somebody pointed out to me that people get to 60 and not having operations so that's something that has always been an issue and and somebody said to me well you know you're gonna you're rowing across the Atlantic and you've got a dodgy knee like well that's something that I'm gonna have to deal with and we did a 24-hour row on row machines at my brother's gym followed by a 26 mile hike just to sort of get ourselves a into the pattern of two hours on two hours off but also to then go and try and navigate whilst mentally and physically exhausted we're walking in the dark in an area that we didn't really know that well so it's trying to make sure that you have the confidence to know where you're going what you're sorting out and my knee played up about 18 hours into the 24-hour row and I just thought this is does not bode well whatsoever but actually just then by taking some time afterwards after the row and getting ready to go out on the walk I was able to get myself back up to it feeling fine and it wasn't as big an issue as, you know, when I was rowing, I was thinking, how am I going to now walk 26 miles with this how, feeling how it is? But then you you work it through and you go, right, okay, these are all the remedies that I've got and the solutions that I can come up with and I'll just make it work. So I think there's injuries, never, never a good one. And that's part of our training is injury prevention and making sure that actually if something goes wrong whilst we're out there, we know exactly how to resolve it and what our plans are if, for example, I can't row for a couple of hours because I need to sort my knee out or if anything else happens to one of the other girls. I love that idea. It's quite uplifting to think that you can push through a pain point and actually see the other side because I think often we find that that's just, that's just the final step when, it, when something like, like an injury or just an, an injury playing up as they often can, a throbbing mm. pain. I think it's such a, an interesting training exercise to actually go through that and simulate confusion, exhaustion, impaired decision-making as a result. So I'm really glad to hear that's part of your training. Well, actually, in a sort of roundabout way, my mum's most successful racehorse was called the pain barrier. So it's probably some sort of idea behind that where you've just got to push through it and make sure that you you don't take that as the end. And there's always, there's always a solution. Well, just coming to a few final questions. So we talked about your mother, talked about the legacy of your grandfather. And were there other key people and your brother too, of course, uh, the personal trainer who's who's guided you on some of this training. Any other key people that had an impression on you on this journey so far? I think that there's so many people that have just, and definitely through this challenge, I have learned how generous of spirit and time and energy resources that people are. It's not necessarily 
here's some money and move on. JM Finn, my employer, they've supported me a huge amount through everything that I've I've wanted to do professionally, but also especially with this challenge. They've taken a huge amount of sponsorship for me. They've done a, a lot of professional videos. They've first, you know, given me the time the time to to do it as well. So it's, it's about two months off work in order to pursue this. And I think that the individuals at the firm as well, you know. I've I've come back to my desk and there's been books on different how to survive the sea, different stories. The James Cracknell and Ben Fogel book was just left on my desk, which was I was hopefully we have a slightly better crossing than they did, but never mind. I mean, there's a whole host of people that are just so willing to to put themselves forward and and support you, and I think that's probably the nicest part of of doing it is the fact that the community spirit. Of, I said it before in an article, you know, it, it takes a village to row an ocean. Although it's just the four of us in the boat, it's it's all the people around us that are supporting us with ideas, their energy. My mum has been has been great because she picked the boat up from Essex and drove it to Cardiff for us when we first bought it. So she did about six hours driving with a eight meter boat on the back of the on the back of the truck, which I was like, I'm not really sure anybody else would have just done this. And she was like, no, that's fine. It's just, you know, part and parcel of being your mother. I was like, okay. <laughs> but I think that, yeah, there's been the hundreds of people that have been incredibly supportive and, and really helped develop me. And in terms of any words of wisdom or motto or creed that you live by, is there anything you can leave us with there? Anything that's formed in your head maybe in some of these two-hour rowing sessions? So I always... This was instilled in me when I was when I was a child, and I fully believe in the fact that if you say you're going to do something, you do it, or you tell the person that you said you're going to do it to that you can't do it. Never say that you'll do something and then just not do it, because the person who asked you to do it just expects that it's done. And I think that was always it was always like, oh, are you going to feed the horses? And if I said that I was going to feed the horses and then I didn't, well, then my mum thought that they were going to be fed and they weren't, and that was instilled in me when I was really young just to say if you're going to do something people then have expectations that it will be done and actually and that it will be done to a good standard and that they don't have to they don't have to then go and check on you or or, just be reliable in that sense so that's definitely something that as a crew we're always facing because if I say that I'm going to go and talk to a potential sponsor and that they're going to give us the money but I don't then follow up on it but one of the crewmates will be expecting that they can spend some money on getting the life raft surfaced or buying some additional pieces of kit. And then it's just not there. That just then breaks the whole trust and foundation to what we're building. So yeah, reliability and doing something if you say you're going to is, is always my main mantra. Well, thank you so much, Laura. It has been incredibly motivating listening to you between the possibility of passing through a pain barrier to just the the, the sheer enormous challenge that you're about to take on but I couldn't think of any better woman to be in that boat and for for those 40 days thank you so much for coming here for sharing the amazing detail of this challenge we will have all the details in the show notes when is day one when do you kick off so we head out to Lagomere on the 30th of November and race start is the 12th of December so I'm out there for my 30th birthday, Christmas and New Year. So think well, of me when uh, you're, you're having your lunch. <laughs> well, ones, ones to remember. Well, thank you so much for coming here and sharing your insights with us. Thank you so much. I'm Ethan Devitt. Thank you for listening to the 50 Faces podcast. If you liked what you heard and would like to tune in to hear more inspiring investors and in their personal journeys, 
Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all of our content on the 50 Paces Hub, where you'll find a library of role models, resources, and other solutions to enhance your career. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice, and all views are personal and should not be attributed to the organizations and affiliations of the host or any guest. I